don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, human violence, a critic of innocence, with Miriam Tifkin. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Miriam Tiktin, who is a professor in anthropology at the New School in New York and the, uh, she used to be the director of uh, gender studies here and uh, she's a current co-director of the Zolberg Center on Global Migration and uh, the author of the book uh, Casualties of Care, Immigration and, Immigration and the Politics of Humanitarianism in France. Uh, hello, Miriam. Hello. Uh, so we need to tell the listeners a little uh, story of their uh, vicissitudes of their of this of this podcast. But this is actually the second time we record this conversation because I was not very structured in the first one. So we both decided we would we would redo it. So I think it's going to be a, a really great one because we it's rare we got to rehearse before actually uh, uh, making the podcast happen. Uh, and so we're we're gonna talk about um, we're gonna talk about figures of innocence today, and uh, I think uh, we can even start this conversation with um, with me asking you about your current work because that's very much still within those uh, editorial lines. So uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, now our expectations are high <laughs> because of this rehearsal, but. Uh, Yeah, the the current work which I'm still formulating is about um, uh, about the expansion of humanitarianism to non-humans, precisely because I'm looking at the figure of the innocent. So I was looking at the ways in which we keep on searching for the figure of the innocent because it somehow always fails to be pure innocence, right? So there's a constant search for this. It becomes a placeholder. Um, so I was looking at, at the ways in which humanitarian Uh, discourses uh, have expanded to to non-humans and particularly to to animals, because they seem to be able to represent innocence in a way that uh, children no longer can or women no longer can. Um, as I think I mentioned before, that there's uh, child soldiers, for instance, that corrupt the figure of the innocent child. Um, and and uh, so what can what can be the figure of innocence now? And it seems to be again now that the dog, the cat, the uh, the planet, the planet, exactly, <laughs> the innocent planet, exactly. It's, it becomes the kind of question of of we need to save Mother Nature, we need to save these, uh, and it's easy to configure them as innocent because they can't speak back to us, right? Um, and they have. Yeah, the, the representations allow for um, for the evocation of, of sympathy through kind of big eyes or you know the same kinds of figures of of suffering victims. Um, um, well, we we're going to try to unfold uh, the logic of uh, of what's behind what's behind this uh, this status of innocence uh, uh, throughout this conversation. And um, one particularly one particular context in which you've been uh, working on it. Is um, the context of um, um, asylum claims and other immigration uh, uh, claims to uh, um, to obtain a, a residency status in uh, in Western countries and in particular in France, uh, and um, 
and so if we if we jump right in the in the topic we can see that one thing that seems to qualify for innocence and we'll we'll, we'll deploy several uh, uh, things that that might uh, qualify as as uh, for the status of innocence but the first one I'd, I'd like to sp to speak about is um, seems to be there the idea that a, a suffering or a sick body could always be considered as innocent and, and therefore could be granted, for example, residency within a given country. Uh, and so, uh, so in France, there's a, there's this uh, legislation that you you probably will tell us about that uh, that allowed uh, um, that allowed bodies who are um, suffering from a disease that ca they cannot be. Uh, a life-threatening disease that cannot be cured in their own countries that could qualify as a that could qualify as a as an argument or a legitimate argument to to reside in in France and uh, and uh, and so uh, I'm sure you'll tell us about it as well. But there there the perverted logics that that's behind uh, that's behind this sort of uh, pointing out at one uh, aspect one. One aspect of innocence, uh, such as such as uh, the sick body, is uh, is uh, deliberate uh, inoculation of of disease to obtain this, this kind of right. So, um, so we we're gonna try to speak about about their, uh, all those logics together for for this uh, forty five minutes or so. Uh, but so could could you could you explain to us a little bit more about those um, uh, the specific case of France and 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 this aspect of the sick bodies uh, in relation to immigration? Yes, of course. Thanks. Um, so one thing that I wanted to say is that. You know, the focus on the innocent body is very much because of the logic of humanitarianism, right? The logic of humanitarianism is based on the fact that one can save people who are suffering in the present, and it gets away from political logics, right? So innocent is opposed to somehow political ideology, someone who's complicit in in their suffering, somehow complicit or in other people's suffering. So the innocent is precisely a way to get away from political frameworks. Um, um, and I think the humanitarian logic works by constantly expanding to find the next innocent victim, right, that it can save. Um, it's almost like looking for surplus value. You're constantly expanding to find that surplus. Um, so this is just a background to kind mm -hmm. of, of, of why the focus on innocence and it very much related to humanitarianism. So in this particular case, um, the politics of immigration in France are, has been very contested as it has been elsewhere. I mean, in the global north and, um, and particularly in Europe uh, uh, and the United States. Um, and in the 1990s, there was... Uh, a decision to think about the politics of immigration through the lens of humanitarianism. That is, rather than talk about uh, about whether it's right or wrong to let immigrants in, there was a movement to say we need to to be humane towards immigrants who are sick and suffering. Um, in particular, it was also related to AIDS crisis and HIV/AIDS and. Uh, 
there was a movement mobilized around that saying that we cannot send people who are HIV positive or have AIDS back to countries where they won't get treatment. If they're in France already, we need to be able to uh, to treat them. And that's just, it's humane. Um, so there's a mobilization by a lot of, uh, of NGOs, uh, including and kind of spearheaded in many ways by Médecins Sans Frontières and Médecins du Monde. So Doctors Without Borders and Doctors... Um, of the world, um, with local NGOs, um, and they got into place uh, a law, or a, a kind of that has been called, a, kind of in some ways in English, the illness clause, so which is, allows people who ha- are seriously ill and already in France uh, papers to receive tra- treatment um, uh, rather than being deported back to their own country. You have to be seriously ill, and uh, you know the consequences of deportation. Uh, are likely being deaf. So this went into place, I guess, in 1998, 1997, um, even though it had been happening informally before. And it allowed people who were seriously ill to stay. Um, What I ended up seeing was increasingly the doors being closed to other forms of immigrants, uh, economic immigrants, even immigrants uh, who were coming for family reunification and so on. And so it uh, Gradually, what seemed to be happening was that uh, this clause based on illness was the most promising way in for different kinds of people. Um, it was an exceptional clause. That is, you, you, it's not for everybody. It's really for the exceptional sick and suffering person, the sick and suffering body. Uh, again, based on the idea that they're innocent, mm-hmm. that they're not trying to sneak in. They're not doing things that are clandestine, that are illegal. They're just truly sick and suffering, and they are, they are this way by no fault of their own. Um, so you would see people getting papers on the basis of, again, of being HIV positive, of being in various stages of cancer, of TB, and uh, and so on. There were also cases around mental illness, um, but that was more uh, that was more contested, partly because it wasn't clear um, how innocent these people were. Uh, um, so uh, I guess that increasingly, as the doors were closed um, and and um, increasingly closed to asylum seekers as well, there was a shift to uh, to giving papers on the basis of these humanitarian exceptions. Uh, and again, on the people who got them were the people who could illustrate their innocence the best. Um, and eventually, I think what you uh, you know have said just now is that people ended up realizing this was their only way in, and. Um, using their illnesses in some ways or trying to be sick or not treating their illnesses. So kind of the most uh, extreme example I heard about when this is anecdotal, but was, was the people who were called up, act up Paris to find out how they could infect themselves with HIV in order to get papers and stay in France. You know, whether they did this or not, I, I don't know. But I did encounter other kinds of people who, for instance, didn't treat their illnesses so they would get papers. And they might have had cataracts, and they, which they didn't treat, uh, which risked blindness, of course, in order to get papers and stay in France. So you were trading in something, you were trading in your body in some sense for political recognition. So biological uh, compromises for political recognition. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we're going to we're going to explore a little bit later uh, the the ideolo- the ideology of of innocence uh, at a at a state nation level let's say but um, but before doing so um, I think we cannot speak of uh, sick bodies without speaking of the role of um, of uh, medical experts and and 
the sort of expertise that it uh, triggers uh, for people who have not necessarily and actually very likely not to have been trained for uh, this kind of situation. Um, and uh, and so in their rehearsal conversation, we were talking about that and we were saying that even though uh, the Hippocratic, uh, Hippocratic hosts, hosts that their, their, the physicians have to take when they start uh, their profession um, is... Um, is uh, um, Forcing, forcing them uh, theoretically to to do every to base all their uh, action uh, on the well-being of uh, of their patient and uh, clearly if if uh, as a doctor you you take a decision you 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 pronounce an expertise that will that is likely to deport the person that you're I mean who is your patient obviously you're not you're not doing them any good uh but uh i would not necessarily uh put the blame on on the doctors here i would uh, think that that might just be not a position that they should be occupying or uh or at least it's a position for for in which they they're they're probably very uh, uh they they've not been trained to 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 exercise uh, the powers that's given to them in their in their in their in the most uh, informed way, I suppose, and um, and so it it really triggers this question of what what is the political role of uh, medical experts in general? I mean, uh, uh, it's a, I think it's a very it's a very tricky question, and and uh, I mean to to give a little bit of. Uh, Additional context still uh, linked to France. Uh, there's something that France still does uh, for their in, that is that links uh, that links immigration with uh, with uh, medical expertise, which is um, uh, when uh, when a young person is uh, found in France without uh, without any legal document to reside there, and that there is no ways to actually. Um, uh, determine determine uh, how old uh, this person is, um, because if uh, this person is less than eighteen years old, then uh, uh, he or she would be authorized to stay and to be uh, to be uh, uh, to have access to 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 welfare and uh, all these things. Uh, whereas uh, any older than eighteen years old would would uh, would not would would have to be deported. And so there's those uh, bone exams that are being conducted by uh, by uh, medical experts um, to determine the age of this person. But it, I mean, uh, there there is an entire argumentation about how this 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 those exams are actually extremely approximative. But in at the end of the day, it's not even what matters whether it's 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 approximative or not. What matters is that they're 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 medical expert is being uh, is making a decision that uh, that he or she should not have the power to make which is which is uh, ultimately their uh, their the political fate of this of the, of, the, of his of his or her patient so uh, anyway that's me talking a lot but can uh, can you maybe uh, tell us more about um, your work in relation to this uh, to the to this medical expertise in those in uh, relation to immigration. Yeah, I mean, I think you you just made a really interesting point about the difference between 
um, doctors not not they shouldn't have the power to make those decisions. Um, and I think that's different than saying medicine is not political, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I, I think that's just a really important distinction to make. Because on the one hand, we really don't think that medicine are, are, is uh, political. We think of it as objective. And that's the way it gets harnessed in these kinds of, of cases, right, about about bone measurements or, um, or about injury law or injury cases. You have to be able to present a particular case as if it's objective, right? Um, or, or uh, you know, who merits what kind of... of, of uh, compensation for for some kind of medical uh, injury or illness. Um, so we look at them as objective, and yet, of course, doctors are never objective, right? And and, and the, not not only scientific knowledge or medical knowledge not objective, but the doctor who enacts it is not objective. Um, there's all kinds of things that that come into play in a decision about whether somebody should receive a certain kind of treatment, what's best for the for the patient, what's not best for the patient. So in, in the case that you mentioned, of course, bone measurements right away, uh, you know, why they should be brought into play in, in deciding who should get treat, you know, who should get uh, papers or not. DNA evidence is used as well uh, to decide whether um, whether a child should be reunited with a family and whether that child is actually a biological child of that particular family. Right away, that brings into play all kinds of political and cultural assumptions uh, about what a family is. Right? Is a family a biological family? Can you have somebody who is a niece or a nephew or a friend and bring them in as part of your family? That 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 is kind of about a whole larger set of cultural and political questions. Um, in this particular case, the, the doctors were harnessed for humanitarian exceptions because they were seen as objective. They were seen as not being involved in the politics of immigration. They were going to give us a, uh, a scientific answer to whether somebody should stay or not. How far advanced is their, is their AIDS? Right? How far advanced is their cancer? Um, and in, in those kinds of cases, again, I think it wasn't recognized that that um, they were making political decisions. One of the clearest examples I saw was that um, when a new doctor came in, this is a public health doctor that was come in that was brought in to adjudicate cases uh, based on this humanitarian exception. They weren't trained in the politics of, of immigration, but the nurses who had been there the whole time trained these doctors in the politics of immigration and in how they should how they should react to particular kinds of cases. In other words, it wasn't based on scientific or medical evidence. It was based on learning how to deal with the politics of immigration. It was based on learning a politics of compassion for these particular immigrants. It had nothing to do, I mean, partly, yes, it had to do with with medical evidence, but really a large part of it was about how to treat a particular individual, whether they merited staying or not. And one of the examples that I've used is is the case of, of medical of mental illness because um, this very much depended on the view of the doctor in in question whether they thought an immigrant would be better served being sent back home or whether they would be better served staying in France um, and these were largely based on ideas that mental illness is related to culture and understanding culture as a whole and, and, and that somebody's mental illness can only be understood uh, 
by understanding their cultural proclivities. Um, in these kinds of cases, people understood mental illness as related to culture. They felt that this, if somebody was was ill, um, they should be sent back home because they be, could be treated there. If somebody had a different understanding of, medical, of mental illness um, and understood it as somehow uh, not related to culture, then they might be more inclined to give somebody papers to stay in France. So there are a number of, of, uh, of cases where this was very much subjective, right? Very much uh, about the uh, about both the kind of medical training of the doctor and their political understandings of whether I spoke to doctors who said, "Well, you know, we have too many immigrants in France, and and I don't care if this person has is HIV positive. I'm going to send them back, and we don't need them here." Where is the medical expertise here, right? This is their political expertise that they're allowed to enact because they're doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there are, there's a, you know a, a lot to say um, about this, but but in particular, I don't think we can get away from doctors as uh, adjudicators, and I think that they're always political, and in fact, I think we might uh, think about the most kind of some of the most potent political actors have been doctors, precisely because they are allowed to see the intimate uh, details of in of, of politics of inequality. I think of, of Fanon, you know, being a doctor during the kind of Algerian war of, of uh, independence, right? Or I think of Che Guevara. They both started as doctors and they became political because of what they saw. So I think kind of uh, we should harness the kind of the the things that doctors can see and use them in political programs. But do- but we need to recognize that doctors then uh, their expertise is always uh, political in some ways, mm-hmm. uh, and the access they have to uh, to the again the 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 ways in which inequality gets gets marked on the body allows them to have insight into the ways larger structural inequalities play out in the world. Um, the kind of most contemporary example is somebody like Paul Farmer, uh, who's seen as a kind of a hero and a, and, a, and a doctor and, and a human rights activist all at once. There's many things about his work that can be seen as problematic, but he has the leverage he does because he's a doctor because he's seen what he's seen. He can link the kind of the marks on the body to the structural inequalities that he sees in Haiti and around the world. Um, so I guess my, my idea about that is not to say doctors should be out of it, but they should be better trained to use their medical expertise responsibly. Mm-hmm. Well, another another doctor that we can talk about and uh, that certainly does not have the aura of Franz Fanon or, mm. or Che Guevara but still who was uh, quite interesting to to look at with uh, Bernard Kouchner. So the the founder uh, who's a physician and the founder of Médecins Sans Frontières, so uh, a doctor without borders, Mm -hmm. in uh, 1976, I believe, or something like that. It was founded in 1971. 71, I'm sorry, even Mm -hmm. even further. And um, uh, uh, who became a, a politician and even their their the foreign affairs secretary, uh, foreign affairs minister uh, during uh, the Sarkozy government administration. Um, And so when Médecins Sans Frontières was founded, one of their first statements that I found in one of the articles that you sent me, that you wrote, uh, was that uh, this NGO was going to be fundamentally and absolutely uh, non-political, which is... uh, uh, incredibly ambitious uh, <laughs> agenda and probably impossible to reach and, and uh, evidently uh, it was not reached and um, 
someone like Al Weizmann in uh, in the, the list of all possible evils uh, has been pointing that out pretty well about Médecins Sans Frontières specifically. But um, it, it brings us to the idea that uh, a non-political consideration for uh, bodies would be considering them all in their, all bodies in their, either, I suppose, either in their universality or, or in their uniqueness, but it would not start to uh, work with uh, the political categories, whatever, whatever they might be. And so some things that uh, you've been pointing out in your work uh, is that NGOs have been little by little reorienting their uh, reorienting their figure of innocence, which uh, is already making exceptions and therefore already making political political uh, decisions. Uh, and in particular, they've been they've been uh, they've been looking at uh, 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 a very specific uh, uh, suffering body, which is. Um, which is a, a woman who are who would be subjected to uh, to domestic violence or to state violence, but uh, but the, to really distinguish particularized uh, woman body, which obviously is already a very political uh, uh, gesture, and um, and so I think that's when we going to open the discussion to, to, to this particular uh, aspect of the figure of innocence, which is, uh, which is uh, the female body, and how, um, and we, we will see later how uh, there is a, it, go, it goes as far as a, a sort of national uh, Western exotization, Exotic uh, narrative and orientalist narrative uh, that that plays into it, but uh, maybe to to begin with uh, the genesis of of this uh, figure of innocence, could you could you maybe tell us more about that and in particular um, when it comes to to NGOs? Mm. Yeah, no, it's such a it's an interesting such an interesting history. I mean, as you said, Kushnell is kind of the, one of the key figures and. You know, it's, it's, it happens around 1968, right, when, when there's the kind of movements and revolutions all over the world, um, and the belief that we can have a better world, right, they would think a world of equality, a world of, of freedom, and, and so on. And with the failure of 1968, you know, Kushner was very involved in, in, in that, and um, and there were many doctors who were very, again, politically engaged and feeling that like you could have a different kind of medicine and, you know, liberatory medicine. Um, with the failure of 1968, um, they decided to kind of get rid of politics, that that you couldn't have a good politics. All po politics was, was bad, was corrupt. None of it would lead to freedom and equality. And instead, um, they turned to the figure of the suffering body, of the innocent suffering body. The only thing we can do is save suffering bodies in the present right now we can't think about what kind of future it's going to create or what kind of past it responds to because we get into politics and political ideologies at the time the only thing we can do the only moral position is focusing on the innocent suffering body in the present and that's how MSF was founded, really. I mean, they, they kind of uh, developed that position over the course of the 1970s and the early 1980s um, but it kind of it, it kind of put politics aside and said we can do something else um, and so the idea, again, was a belief in universality, but the way universality was measured was through bodies, not through politics, not through kinds of qualified bodies or qualified forms of life. It was through the idea of saving 
a, a body, which is common to all of us, a human body, right? Um, so, you know, again, somehow the foundation is of universality, but the way it gets played out uh, results in all kinds of, of, of inequalities and all kind of recognitions of, or lack of recognitions of, of difference in, in some ways. What kinds of suffering gets recognized? What kinds of suffering doesn't get recognized? And that is, again, about it, it, it requires that we recognize innocence in a particular way as somehow, again, this is the most, this is the quintessential form of suffering. How do we identify that? How does that become uh, something that we feel morally compelled to respond to? There's an imperative there. Well, that's all about political ideologies and, and histories that come to play. Um, so, you know, when you think about gender, of course, uh, gender doesn't come into the humanitarian mandate uh, until you know, the early 2000s, you know, because gender was seen as something political. Gender relations are relations of power. We can't get around that. There's no such thing as gender, as we've seen from people like Judith Butler and so on. Many, many feminists have showed that gender is, is constructed. It's not something that is fixed or biological in any way. It's performed. So if you're thinking about gender relations, then you're thinking about relations of power, which immediately um, uh, are beyond the scope in some senses of humanitarianism, um, because they make us think about what causes this inequality, what causes this form of violence. It's about inequalities, gendered inequalities, patriarchies, imperialism that are about gendered and racialized inequalities. That's where gender-based violence comes from. So if you get into that, you have to get into politics more broadly. Uh, so it expands the meaning of humanitarianism and pushes uh, our, our idea of, of, of how far it can go. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I, I guess I can say something about the innocent, you were saying the innocent body, the gendered, the innocent gendered body. Uh, in this case, again, to you know, humanitarian, humanitarianism and MSF got into it, and particularly in relation to kind of wars in the Congo and gender-based violence there. Um, but I, I, there are inequalities in what gets recognized. Again, not all gender-based violence get, gets recognized. Kind of who was seen as the most innocent victim? And in this particular case, it's it's gendered and racialized, and so it's seen as often uh, the brown body of the woman who's somehow suffered victim on the uh, suffered violence at the hands of the kind of the brown man um brown man um hurting the brown woman and kind of white men have to save brown women from brown men this is a classic formulation by spivak um and this is what happened it was kind of msf going in white people going in to save brown women from from the violence of their brown men um, and, and that was the classic case in the Congo. Uh, I mean, it's not to say that these weren't horrific forms of violence that were, on, were that were are being perpetrated. It's just a question of why those, as opposed to other forms of, of gender-based violence, like domestic violence that goes on around the world, all forms of, of violence. Uh, why that? You know, it was uh, gender-based violence in the context of war. So, uh, you know, which kinds of wars are seen as the, the most worthy of, of, of being addressed, right? Uh, um, all these kinds of things came, came into play. Um, and humanitarianism tried to somehow uh, sterilize these kinds of bodies and make it about health as opposed to kind of power relations. So it was about kind of infection of HIV during kind of rape, or it was about... Um, um, other kinds of uh, STDs that somebody would have gotten, or about kind of damage um, 
to, there was a particular form of uh, of damage that happens if uh, during rape where somebody can actually you can uh, break the break the barrier between I guess the uterus and the rest of the body so um, so you, you have all kinds of injuries that happen because of, so the 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 uh, um, the humanitarians went in to deal with these health consequences uh, as opposed to kind of any of the larger political consequences of rape or gender-based violence. That al- allowed them, in some sense, to construct gender-based violence as a health-based problem. Um, it certainly has health consequences. There's no question about it. But to address those without thinking about the larger consequences is not to deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought the... Um, uh you brought on the table the idea that uh, this problem is highly uh, racialized as well because it brings us back to the question of um, of uh, uh, asylum and uh, all, all the discretionary uh, uh, authorization of residency in uh, Western countries and in, in France in particular and France being like a, <laughs> France being a, a colonial a colonial power uh, uh, that's that's when the, the racialized uh, aspect uh, uh, um, enters into play as well, and um, and uh, I would like you to speak about those two examples that are highly uh, representative of that. Uh, but um, maybe to give a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, to to approach those two examples in the right way, uh, I think it's important to see what is the ideology of um, behind. Asylum in in uh, Western countries, uh, and how uh, somehow the the very act of um, asking for asylum is a form of uh, of um, it's it, it, it's uh, it's understood by the the state as a form of flattering, like it flatters the state that uh, uh, someone needs the state's help, and and there is uh, uh, it, it, there is a there is a uh, what what you call yourself a, a script about about it a sort of choreography of how the cry for help will never be as powerful as when it is perfectly fitting the the, the national narrative and the colonial narrative the the exotic and orientalist narrative of the western state and so uh so this being said like uh if you could tell us about those two examples of uh, of uh, this uh, this uh, Algerian woman on on one hand and this Algerian man on the other hand and why <coughs> why one would uh, uh, fit very well the script the, the the national narrative and maybe actually uh, is aware of it that's that's also where where when things get, gets interesting as well she's aware of it uh, that uh, going with this narrative would very much help whereas uh, this man would suffer from uh, 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 the, the sort of colonial judgment of, of the medical uh, medical expert in charge of determining whether this person uh, should be deported or not. Um, so yeah, the, the, there's there's those, those two examples uh, that that you've been uh, you've been uh, pr- present. I think uh, could could you tell us more? Yeah. yeah. First, I wanted to actually make a. Sure. Um, a distinction between asylum and, and these humanitarian exceptions, mm. because um, as Didier Fassin has shown, actually, the you know as the um, 
the acceptance rate of people applying for political asylum went down just as the uh, acceptance rate for people applying under the basis of humanitarian exceptions went up. So in some senses, the humanitarian exception replaced the legal right to asylum. Mm -hmm. um, and, and partly because the humanitarian exception is an exception. It, it's discretionary. Whereas asylum should be you know, given on the basis of, of particular criteria and, and grounded in law. It's a well-founded fear of persecution. So in some senses, kind of turning to humanitarianism is, is turning away from the law mm -hmm. and, and giving the power to the people who are who are, um, are adjudicating on the basis of this humanitarian exception back into what you said, which is the doctors, which is where the abuse of power happens. It shouldn't be they. It should be somebody who is actually qualified to do that. Um, so in this particular case, um, you know, asylum is about is about um, is about persecution again, a well-founded fear of persecution. Kind of the quintessential uh, refugee was somebody who was a political refugee, a fleeing from uh, an oppressive regime and looking for uh, asylum elsewhere, where they could kind of in a, in a space that was freer, right? And they're um, that has gradually been worn down, and, and there's been kind of the idea that uh, asylum seekers are fraudulent, that they're not, um, that they're actually economic migrants. They're, you know, all kinds of other things have, have come to um, replace the idea of, of political asylum as somehow legitimate. So um, I, I guess before I give the example, the one thing that I want to say also is that um, is that I don't mean to say that even in applications for asylum, there is no performance. It's not, you know, the law involves a performance as well. You know, as you present your case to the, to, to the judge, you're making a performance, right? And, and so both in the case of, I think, of asylum uh, and in the case of humanitarian exceptions, um, there are performances that need to be uh, enacted on both sides by the judge and by the person who is 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 uh, requesting asylum. The judge wants to hear certain things. They're looking for certain kind of tropes, and the asylum seeker knows that and tries to give a narrative that can be heard and recognized by the judge. Um, so it, the difference in this case and the case I'm going to talk about is that the person listening to and adjudicating is the doctor and the nurse as opposed to the, the judge or the lawyer. Um, so in the case that, that you were mentioning, these are humanitarian exceptions um, and it's the case in um, uh, again of, of, of people applying for uh, humanitarian exceptions based on, on uh, serious illness. Um, they're both pro slightly um, uh, liminal cases, which is why the judgment of the doctor comes to play so so uh, importantly. Um, in in this case, it was um, an Algerian woman who was coming in who had uh, been raped and disfigured by her uncle. She, uh, the background to the case is that uh, her primary caretaker, who was her grandmother in Algeria, and died. She was sent to stay with her uh, uncle and aunt. Uh, the uncle raped her and. And uh, and so she was sent to France to be with her mother, who had gone there to work and send, and send back money. Um, and uh, she was sent to these doctors and the nurses, and she'd been disfigured and really violently attacked. Um, and they gave her papers to say to 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 receive treatment. Um, when her papers expired, because they can be given on the basis of kind of temporary three months, six months, a year, or indeterminate period. So when her papers expired, she came back and said, you know. I, I want to stay. And in this case, the, the nurses um, uh, had the power to make a decision. Right? It was disc discretionary. So her narrative came to play in a very important way. 
the way the nurses saw it and the way they described it to me was this woman had been abused by barbaric uncle. Uh, she'd been disfigured. She'd been raped. She had been, she'd become unmarriageable. She was never going to be able to be pure and marriageable. So she was going to live a pitiful life as she went back to Algeria. So on the basis of that, they decided to give her uh, papers to stay. Uh, it was a basis of, of, of trauma, of PTSD. Um, they justified it, uh, and, and they, they said very clearly that their decision went into the realm of social justice. They felt this was the only way to treat her properly. So they gave her papers for an indeterminate amount uh, of time to stay. And the, the kind of the contrasting example is um, an Algerian man who had come in um, when I was sitting there with them and made a case to get papers, again, um, based on the fact of, of what he'd called a heart attack, what they didn't see as a heart attack. They thought it was kind of in uh, some kind of another condition, not quite as as as, um, as uh, simple as a heart murmur, but it wasn't. Very, it wasn't that serious. He made a case. He started crying. He was saying they were going to separate him from his wife. Um, he was sobbing kind of uncontrollably, and how could the state do this, and so on. And the nurse became quite agitated and didn't seem very sympathetic and saying, oh, yeah, the state's trying to you know, separate you from your wife. How long have you been married? You've barely been married anyways, and so on and so on, and, and was really uh, questioning his story. Uh, when, he, when, when he left, uh, the nurse uh, signaled that she thought he had been lying. You know, he, his, nose, his nose was as long as a beak. He was being compared to Pinocchio. Um, and I, I couldn't understand why uh, she so quickly judged him. Um, many people come in, and clearly many people have stories to tell, and not all of them are, 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 are true. They're, again, they're, these are scripts, they're performances. Um, and to me, when I thought about it afterwards, uh, it really seemed to me that this fit into a larger pattern and a larger set of national narratives about Algerian men and Algerian women, and Algerian men being violent and barbaric and now being kind of the face of terrorism, um, and Algerian women being, you know, uh, oppressed and, uh, you know, cloistered at home, having to wear headscarves and, and and so on. And so the goal of the French state in this particular case is to save the, the Algerian woman, to kind of uh, free her from having to wear the headscarf and to condemn the Algerian men from being barbaric, from being violent, from being homophobic, all these other kinds of things. I think one cannot take the nurses' decisions outside of those national narratives. It's not to say that those were determinant in any particular way, but that you cannot read that without understanding those as part of larger national scripts, right? And colonial scripts, most importantly, of that France has inherited from um, from its, uh, you know, from the colonial regime in Algeria. Um, so I, I think, again, um, one has to perform in a particular way in order to be heard. I saw other Algerian women performing Orientalist narratives showing how they'd been kidnapped and been subject to honor killings or, 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 or forced marriages. And those were the ones that got heard because they're so recognizable. Um, how then one can make a case for, as an Algerian man, for, for sympathy, for, for consideration is not clear. It doesn't fit into those, into those narratives, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a real injustice. Yeah. Well, I, th I think it uh, it brings us to uh, a few uh, uh, concluding remarks. I would say that that uh, that uh, will allow us to uh, maybe describe a little bit more precisely what we mean uh, uh, behind all that, which is obviously not 
that uh, 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 that asylum should not be granted or a humanitarian exception should not be granted or it's it's none of those things but it's just that once you once you um, consider figures of innocence the corollary the corollary thing to it is that you distinguish other figures which will not be considered as innocent and uh, we were talking about that when we were uh, uh, preparing this conversation but uh, uh, I think we 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 both have been uh, uh, quite shocked in the way uh, the current siege on Gaza is being treated in the press because of that and even in, I, mean, I mean in particular in press that actually think of itself as well-intentioned and, and pointing out how uh, uh, the the children of the children of Gaza have never been to political rally. I mean, I'm 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 thinking in particular of this editor, editorial in the Guardian that that was making a, a plea for uh, saving the children of Gaza, but trying to save the children, uh, trying to develop a, re- a rhetoric to save the children of Gaza is forgetting all the other people in Gaza and and who are no more reasons to be bombed and massacred than than children would have and so so that's that's exactly what we do it seems a little bit counterintuitive to say we should not distinguish the children uh, from other people it seems like it it seems the first thing we would do would precisely to to distinguish them but when you distinguish by definition you're going to you're gonna you're gonna exclude from this distinction. So, I think when we're talking about exception, I think ex- ex- exception is is very much linked to to innocence, isn't it? Absolutely. And and as you said, I think the problem, you know, in 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 this kind of discourse is yes, you have innocent and you have guilty, and the innocent becomes the exception, and the guilty becomes the majority. And even still, who can fit into that category of innocent is really not clear. It becomes an incredibly exclusionary discourse. As you said, it leaves out experiences of life. You know, one cannot have experienced anything uh, in order to become, uh, to be considered an innocent victim. You have to be passive. You have to have, uh, somehow be pure in ways that are almost untenable in situations of war and situations of violence and so on. So using that, in fact, despite you know being well intentioned in in actual fact i think is is actually much more harmful than not using that language at all mm-hmm. um, focusing on children uh, as much as we like to focus on children ends up hurting children it ends up hurting i mean you want to save the children but how who are the children without their parents right how can children live without kind of uh, parents who've been bombed or killed and and in ways that are are, are seen as as um, as kind of um, uh, fine, right, that we assume was acceptable. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was saying to you earlier that I, I think of this in the case of the of the children, uh, the unaccompanied minors crossing the U.S. border. Um, and I, what I found really interesting was that usually the face of humanitarianism is the innocent child, as in the case of Gaza, we have to save these innocent children. In this particular case, those children were never considered innocent. They never were even allowed to represent the innocent child. And I thought, how interesting is that? Why is that? And I think it's because they're contaminated by kind of the gangs that they get associated or by the violence they're trying to flee. And they're contaminated by being associated with undocumented immigrants who are imprisoned the moment they come into uh, into the U.S. So 
they're never allowed the chance to be to be innocent and and then they're just disqualified they're not taken seriously at all they're not allowed to register claims for asylum or anything else so using that language is 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 actually more harmful i think than than not you know as much as we want to, as you said mobilize uh mobilize people on the basis of of of, of innocence I, I think it backfires it just backfires yeah. mm-hmm. All right. Well, Miriam, thank you very much for all your time and uh, twice. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, I think this second time was uh, uh, particularly clear in the point uh, that uh, your work is trying to make. Uh, uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm very happy we got to redo it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's been great. I've learned a lot from it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>